I'm Felix Bunnell, and this is episode two of The Housebound Historian. We're reading Skid Road, an informal portrait of Seattle, uh, written by Murray Morgan, published in 1951 by Viking in New York. Today we're going to read parts one and two of chapter one, and chapter one is called Doc Maynard and the Indians, 1852-1873. In 1850, Dr. David Swenson Maynard was living in Lorain County, Ohio. He was 42 years old and in debt. On the morning of April 9th, he shook hands with his wife Lydia, whom in 20 years of marriage he had come to dislike, kissed his two children, mounted his gray mule, and rode off toward California, where he hoped to recoup his fortunes. Maynard intended to join another Ohioan, Colonel John B. Weller, in the goldfields, but kindness and cholera sidetracked him. Instead of panning for nuggets, he became one of the founding fathers of Seattle, and in some ways the most influential figure of the early days on Elliott Bay. Maynard was a man of parts, a warm human being whose worst faults grew out of his greatest virtue, his desire to be helpful. And few people ever got into more trouble trying to help others. He went broke being helpful in Ohio, where during the 1830s he ran a medical school. There's no record that the Vermont-born doctor ever dunned a patient, and he not only extended unlimited credit, but signed his patient's promissory notes. His school went under during the Panic of 1837, and so did the projects of a number of friends he had sponsored. He found himself saddled with more than $30,000 of other people's debts. For 12 years, he labored to pay off his creditors and feed his family, but when his children were old enough to look after themselves, Maynard found irresistible the appeal of California, where a man might unearth a fortune. The fact that the new El Dorado lay half a continent away from his wife made it no less attractive. The first entry in his travel diary expressed the intention of many another man who eventually settled in Seattle. Quote, left here for California, unquote. Maynard was still intent on California when he reached St. Louis on the Missouri. He was traveling light. He had a mule, a buffalo robe, a few books, a box of surgical instruments, and some medicines. He had almost no cash, and he relied on his profession to pay his way. At St. Joseph, he attached himself to a caravan of wagons bound for the west. They crossed the river on May 16th. Four days later, the doctor scribbled in his journal, Quote, pass some new graves, unquote. Death was part of the pioneer experience. Day after day, as the wagons rolled west across prairies green with spring, Maynard counted the graves beside the trail. May 21st. Passed the grave of A. Powers of Peoria County, Illinois. Died on the 20th, about 65 miles west of St. Joseph. Traveled about 18 miles. Was called to visit three cases of cholera. One died, a man leaving a wife and child from Illinois, poor. He lived seven hours after being taken. May 22nd, rainy. Fleming and Curtis taken with the cholera. Wake all night. Called upon just before we stopped to see a man with cholera who died soon after. May 23rd, Curtis and Fleming better but not able to start in the morning. May 24th, camped at Blue River. One grave, child 11 years old, forded the stream. Raised our loading, got my medicine wet. The doctor himself was touched with the disease. He said nothing, not wanting to worry his companions, but he confided his trouble to the journal. May 29th. Started at 6 o'clock, going about 18 miles. Water scarce and poor. Curtis gave the milk away. Went without dinner. A drove of buffaloes were seen by a company ahead. Left the team and went on ahead. Saw one buffalo and one antelope. Took sick with the cholera. No one meddled or took any notice of it but George Moon. May 30th, feel better, start on foot, continue to get better, travel up the Little Blue 20 miles, wood, water, and feed tolerable. 
That week they passed Fort Kearney, a low wood and mud building on a sandy plain that rose into sand hills. Maynard wrote with wonder of the tame buffalo grazing near the fort. A spring cloudburst caught them on the plat, and for two days the party shivered, unable to get a fire going. There was more cholera. June 4th, a man died with a cholera in sight of us. He was a mason. I was called to see him, but too late. June 5th, have a bad headache. Take a blue pill. June 6th, unship our load and cross a creek. One death, a Missourian from cholera. Go 18 miles, pass four graves in one place. Two more of the same train are ready to die. Got a pint and a half of brandy. Earn $2.20. The next day, cholera changed Maynard's life. But at the time, Maynard was most impressed by the fact that he earned nearly $9 doctoring. June 7th, start late. Find plenty of doctoring to do. Stop at noon to attend some person sick with cholera. One was dead before I got there and two died before the next morning. They paid me $8.75. Deceased were Israel Brashears and William Brashears and Mrs. Morton, the last being mother to the bereaved widow of Israel Brashears. We are 85 or 90 miles west of Fort Kearney. June 8th, left the camp of distress on the open prairie at half past four in the morning. The widow was ill both in body and mind. I gave them slight encouragement by promising to return and assist them along. I overtook our company at noon, 20 miles away, went back and met the others in trouble enough. I traveled with them until night. Again overtook our company three miles ahead, made arrangements to be ready to shift my duds to the widow's wagon when they come up in the morning. The Brashears train was headed for Tumwater at the extreme southern tip of Puget Sound, where the widow Brashears' brother, Michael T. Simmons, had settled five years earlier in 1845, the first American to homestead on the Sound. Maynard agreed to stay with her until she reached there. The doctor, who had never so much as switched an ox, now found himself in charge of a team with five yoke of oxen and two yoke of cows. He was also a physician to a group that was deathly ill. Even with his ministrations, the party had seven deaths from cholera in two weeks. And he was the newcome leader of a group split by dissension. Several members wanted to turn back. For two weeks after shifting his duds to the widow's wagon, the doctor was too busy even to write in his journal, the only lapse in his record. But by the 4th of July, things were in good enough order for him to note, quote, We celebrated a little, unquote. They kept moving. For two months, the Brashears train edged westward four miles, ten miles, occasionally twenty miles a day. Maynard experienced the routine hardships of the trail and knew, too, the occasional joys of good water, of fresh fish, or a day without petty disaster. He underwent the ordeal that gave the settlers of the Pacific Northwest a hard core of mutual understanding. Nearly every family that came to Seattle during the early days had passed through the trials by dust and dysentery that Maynard, riding by firelight or in the early dawn, penciled in his little journal. Drag the team through sand eight miles to Devil's Gate, oxen sick, vomiting like dogs. Discovered a party of Indians coming upon us. We heard that they had just robbed one train, prepared for an attack. When within half a mile, they sent two of their number to see how strong we were. After viewing us carefully, left us for good. Kept guard for fear of Mormons. Traveled in sand all day and camped without water or feed. I was well worn out, as well as the team, from watching at night. A miserable company for help. Traveled all day and night, dust from one to twelve inches deep on the ground and above the wagon a perfect cloud. Crossed a plain twelve miles and then went over a tremendous mountain. Team falling behind, found them too weak to travel. Left camp at 6.30 after throwing lion and doctoring his foot, which Mrs. Brashears, George, and myself did alone. Indians are plenty. Was called to see a sick papoose. 
got to Fort Hall, found the mosquitoes so bad that it was impossible to keep the oxen or ourselves on that spot. Oh God, the mosquitoes. Sick all day and under the influence of calomel pills. Started late on Lyon's account, drove two and a half miles and he gave up the ghost. We then harnessed N-word on the lead, lost our water keg, 16 miles to water, rode very stony, traveled six miles to Salmon Falls, bought salmon of the Indians. This place is delightful. The stream is alive with fish of the first quality, and wild geese are about as tame as the natives. Watch team all night, am nearly sick, but no one knows it but myself. Crossed creek and climbed the worst of all hills, went up three times to get our load up, geared the wagon shorter, threw overboard some of our load, cut off the wagon bed and again overhauled, left this morning a distressed family who were without team or money and nearly sick from trouble, left Brandy and Polly to die on the road. Here we began climbing the Blue Mountains, and if they don't beat the devil. Came over the mountains and through dense forest of pine twenty miles, traded for a mare and colt in Indian dress, paid for the things a brass kettle, two blankets, a shirt, etc. Bought a fine spotted horse which cost me fifty-five dollars. Came to the Columbia River twenty miles through sand all the way. This night I had my horse stolen. I was taken about sunset with dysentery, which prostrated me very much. Drove to the Dalles, sold the cattle to a Mr. Wilson for $110, and prepared to start for Portland down the river. Sat up nearly all night and watched the goods. Loaded up our boat and left. Came down about 15 miles and landed for the night. We buried a child which we found upon the bank of the river drowned. Hired a team and got our goods down below the rapids. Engaged Chenoweth to start out with us immediately, but he, being a scoundrel, did not do as he agreed. Hired an Indian to carry us down in his canoe to Fort Vancouver. We had a hard time, in consequence of the Indian being so damned lazy. By rowing all the way myself, we got to the fort at one in the morning, as wet as the devil. Left the fort with two Indians who took us down the Columbia, 38 miles to the mouth of the Cowlitz, which is a very hard stream to ascend. Came to Plamondon's Landing about noon, obtained horses, and started out 10 miles to Mr. J.R. Jackson's. Made our way 20 miles through dense forest and uneven plain, 25 miles to M.T. Simmons, our place of destination where we were received with that degree of brotherly kindness which seemed to rest our weary limbs and promise an asylum for us in our worn-out pilgrimage. And now part two of chapter one. Maynard, of course, was in love with the widow Brashears, and he quickly fell in love with the Puget Sound country. The weather was wet but mild. After the dust and heat of the plains, after the cold of the mountains, after the alkali water of the plains, Maynard did not mind the rain. He liked the gray, overcast days when the firs and hemlocks on the nearby hills combed the bottom of the heavy clouds that pulsed in from the Pacific. The salt water fascinated him. The sound stretched northward for more than a hundred miles from the Simmons homestead, a quiet inland sea, its shoreline charted but its surrounding hills almost unexplored. It was good, too, after the weeks on the trail, to relax in a house with windproof walls, to listen to rain on the cedar shakes, to sleep in a bed, to eat white bread and fresh vegetables to talk to Catherine Brashears, who was beautiful, or even to her sister-in-law, Elizabeth Simmons, who was not. The brotherly kindness shown by Simmons on the party's arrival did not extend to Maynard after Simmons detected that his sister's interest in the doctor exceeded that of an employer for her ox team driver. It did not matter to Simmons that Maynard was a doctor and a fellow Democrat. He was also a married man. Simmons suggested that Maynard move on to California before the other fellows dug all the gold. Maynard stalled. He had heard rumors that coal had been discovered on the Lower Sound, and he wanted to investigate. In mid-November, he hired some Indians to paddle him north on a prospecting trip. The Sound stretches south between the Olympic Mountains and the Cascades. 
To the west, the Olympics sheer up from the water, big and abrupt as a cow in a bathtub, as one early traveler put it. They were almost black with fur and hemlock, and though explorers had located several good anchorages along the western shore, the absence of any extensive farmlands discouraged settlement. Like the Hudson's Bay people who had covered this territory before him, Maynard skirted the eastern shore as he paddled north. The Cascades stood well back from the water. A plain nearly 30 miles wide stretched between the salt water and the rugged foothills. The plain was forested and useless for farming, but mountain streams flowing from the glaciers on Mount Rainier and Mount Baker had cut several valleys, which offered broad acres of rich volcanic soil. The Nisqually, already cultivated by the Hudson's Bay Company, the Puyallup, 20 miles to the north, and just beyond the Puyallup, the Duwamish. Maynard was headed still farther north, to the Stillaguamish, a swift stream that enters the sound at a point due east of the Strait of Juan de Fuca, the channel to the Pacific Ocean. His journal of the trip is matter-of-fact, but it is not hard to imagine the feelings of a man from the plains as he rode in the black-painted cedar dugout over the gentle waters of the sound, the islands dark with Douglas fir, the wind sharp with salt, and sweet with the scent of red cedar. The great mountain rose in the east, its white cone streaked with blue-black ridges, and to the west stood the Olympics, white with early snow. Seals bobbed up to stare round-eyed at the black canoe, and porpoises curved through the waters ahead. Just below the surface floated translucent jellyfish, and when the Indians paddled close to shore, Maynard could see giant starfish clinging to the rocks and anemones, pink and green and gold, moving in the currents. Even the barnacles were open and waved pale tentacles in search of food and fish. When the canoe drifted through the narrows on the outgoing tide, Maynard could look down and see salmon lying head to current in the deep water below the clay cliffs. The slap of fish breaking surface sounded almost as steadily as the beat of the cedar paddles. Gulls wheeled overhead on steady wings, turning their smooth heads slowly as they scanned the water for prey. When the canoe skirted the shore, cranes flapped heavily into flight. Sometimes mallard and coot skittered along the green surface, or a hell diver flipped under. The party landed and bought salmon and potatoes and mats from some Indians who were smoking clams near the beach. They camped for the night, too low the first night, and the tide drove them off to spend the night on the water. Maynard lost a skillet cover and got his gun wet. The next day a southwest wind came up and rain fell. The Indians raised a sail, and the dugout ran with the waves under a flat roof of clouds that stretched from the dark islands to the dark shore. In the rain, Maynard coasted past the sandy spit where, within a year, Seattle would be founded, and in the rain reached the Stillaguamish. The record of his exploration for coal is lost. He is believed to have found some traces and, on his return to the Upper Sound, to have sold the pages of his journal describing the location to another explorer. Maynard settled in a small community on Bud Inlet, three miles north of Tumwater. The place, now called Olympia, was then known officially as Smithter, though most people call it Smithfield, both names honoring Levi Smith, a Presbyterian divinity student who settled there in 1848 but lost his life when he suffered an epileptic attack in a canoe. While Maynard was living in Smithter, Congress awarded the town a customs house, and it became the first port of entry on the Sound. The town prospered, but not Maynard, whose money ran out. There were not enough people on the Upper Sound to support a doctor, so he borrowed an axe, and between calls on the widow Brashears, he cut wood. He kept cutting for half a year, and by the fall of 1851, he had 400 cords piled at tidewater. Maynard persuaded Leonard Felker, captain of the brig Franklin Adams, to haul him and his wood to San Francisco. There the wood brought him more than $2,000. 
he used the money to buy a stock of trading goods from a wrecked ship. Before returning north, Maynard looked up his old friend John Weller, who was reconverting himself to politics after serving as a colonel during the Mexican War. Weller tried to talk Maynard into staying in California, but the doctor protested that life in the gold camps was too rowdy. In two days, he had been called to treat four gunshot victims. He would return to Puget Sound, where life would be more orderly. Weller told Maynard of two other Ohioans, Henry Yesler and John Strobel, who shared Maynard's conviction that Western Oregon had a future and who planned to start a sawmill somewhere in the Northwest. Weller said to Maynard, Doctor, let me advise you. You have the timber up there that we want and must have. Give up your profession. Get machinery and start a sawmill. By selling us lumber, you'll make $100 for every one that you may possibly make in doctoring, and you'll soon be rich. He was right, of course, but Maynard did not have enough money to buy machinery, and he was tired of cutting trees by hand. He sailed back on the Franklin Adams with his stock of trading goods. Going down the sound, the vessel passed a cluster of cabins on a spit near the mouth of Duwamish River, a settlement which Maynard was told was derisively called New York Alki, meaning New York pretty soon. Maynard rented a one-room building in Olympia and opened his store. His business methods were unorthodox, even for the frontier. Since he had purchased his goods at half price, he sold them at half the price asked by other merchants if he was feeling particularly good, and alcohol often made him feel particularly good. He was inclined to give his customers presents. He offered unlimited credit. Maynard was popular with the townsfolk, but not with other merchants, among them Mike Simmons, who felt that Maynard was not only hell-bent for bankruptcy, but was a bad influence on customers. His business rivals suggested that Maynard would probably be happier selling his goods somewhere else. One day, an Indian named Sialf, pronounced Sialf and sometimes Seattle, the Taiyi, or chief, of the tribe living at the mouth of the Duwamish River, which was also known as the Duwamish and the Tuwamish, and to everyone's confusion, as the White, paddled up to Olympia on a shopping trip. Tsialf was a big, ugly man with steel-gray hair hanging to his shoulders. He wore a breech clout and a faded blue blanket. His arrival caused some stir in the little community, for the Whites considered him one of the most important Taiyis in Oregon Territory. They certainly were more impressed by Tsialf than the Indians were. The tribes along the Sound were of the Salish family, the Nisqualis, the Duwamish, the Muckleshoots, the Puyallups, the Suquamish, the Snohomish, and other groups varied in number from less than a hundred to more than a thousand, but they all seemed to have had the same notion about the role of a chief. A chief had little authority. He was merely a rich man with some eloquence, a man whose opinions carried more weight than those of his fellow tribesmen. Since wealth was hereditary, the chieftaincy often stayed in one family, but it did not necessarily go to the eldest son. The tribe might agree on a younger son, on an uncle, on anyone who was rich, or at least generous and wise, or at least persuasive. A tribe might agree to have more than one chief. Nearly all had one leader for peace and another who took over during war. Tsialf appears to have been an exception to this rule. He was a peacetime taiyi, but there was a story current in his lifetime that he had distinguished himself as a strategist in some distant campaign and that his military genius had established his people's hegemony over the lands at the mouth of the Duwamish, on the western shore of Lake Washington, and on the eastern side of Bainbridge Island. Tsialth was, as the settlers put it, an old Indian, meaning he refused to wear Boston, that is, American, clothing, and he would speak neither English nor the trade jargon called Chinook. He talked in Duwamish, and anyone who wished to speak with him either learned Duwamish or found an interpreter. 
Nevertheless, Tsialt was considered to be friendly toward the whites and was on good terms with the storekeepers in Olympia. It may have been Mike Simmons who suggested to Sielf that he speak to Maynard about moving his store up to the little settlement of New York Alki. Maynard agreed. He held a hurried sail, loaded his remaining goods aboard a scow, and, accompanied by Tsialf and a squad of Duwamish paddlers, started north. The 40-mile trip took four days and three nights. Maynard and his companions landed on the sand spit of New York Alki late on the afternoon of March 31, 1852. And we'll end there. Um, We'll start the next episode, episode three of Housebound Historian, with part three of chapter one of Skid Road by Murray Morgan. I'm Felix Bunnell.